Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Ohio versus the world, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the world is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to EvergreenPodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back. It's episode two. So great to have everybody listen to our first episode last week, Ohio versus Russia. Thanks for all your kind words and emails. So so great to be back. So glad that you missed us. Today we're staying international, but this time we're back in the Western Hemisphere. We'll go to Panama. We'll be telling you about Operation Just Cause, as it was called, the United States invasion of Panama in 1989. We'll go back to the beginning of the 20th century to explain the complex relationship between America and the Isthmus of Panama and how the U.S. forced a regime change in that country in removing the military dictator Manuel Noriega through force. It's Memorial Day weekend coming up, and this episode will not only tell the rocky history of our two countries, but the building and the managing of the Panama Canal will tell the story of two Ohioans, two heroes that served in that war in 1989, Command Sergeant Major Mike Hall of Lorain County, Ohio, near Cleveland, and Private First Class James Markwell of Cincinnati, both Army Rangers, from the 75th Ranger Regiment in the U.S. Army. One made it, and one made the ultimate sacrifice. We'll learn their stories and how one family became lifelong friends with the commander-in-chief that ordered Operation Just Cause, our 41st president, George H.W. Bush. We're so honored to speak with Sandy Rouse to tell that story of her son who inspired so many in his 21 years on this earth, Private First Class James Markwell. Reminder to follow us on Facebook at Ohio v. The World, We'll keep the discussion of this episode and future episodes going there and on Instagram at Ohio v. The World Podcast and Twitter at Ohio v. The World. We are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com, listen to all our episodes, and there are numerous other shows on Evergreen. So they've even got their own history channel. This show has some pretty similar elements to an Evergreen show called Warriors in Their Own Words, where U.S. veterans tell their combat story, as the show kind of suggests, in their own words. Check that program out on Evergreen as we observe Memorial Day 2022. We've got 100 plus years of history to get to here, so let's pull the ripcord. Let's parachute in. It's episode two, Ohio vs. Panama. Every Memorial Day as a kid, we would hit up Union Cemetery in Upper Arlington with my grandparents. They were part of the World War II generation, and we'd place flags at the gravestones of veterans. My grandpa Hasty was a merchant marine in the Pacific during the war. I'd like to get back to doing that with my son. Command Sergeant Major Michael Hall was so great to join us over three decades in the Army, serving as a ranger in command positions all over the world. He's the executive director of the Three Rangers Foundation and serves on the board of the Wounded Warrior Project. We asked Mike, a fellow long-suffering Browns fan, how he got into the defense and service of our country as a poor kid growing up in Lorain County, Ohio. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Lorain County, and 
when I say Lorraine County, it's all over Lorraine County. I think, uh, you know, I went to, I went to 12 schools <laughs> and, uh, you know, lived in many places because, of course, back then, if you didn't pay the rent, then you you left and you moved somewhere else. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think, you know, I had, I had a couple uncles that were, I didn't really know my dad. I had a couple uncles that were very influential in my life. I mean, back in the mid-70s, that was sort of sort of what you did. You, you uh, graduated high school. You went in the service for a couple of years. You, you came back and worked for Ford Motor Company or, or United States Steel or, you know, or something. And, you know got in the union and, and you lived a pretty good life. Graduated Avon Lake High School in, uh, in 76 when Avon Lake High School was about 30% the size it is now. Joined the Army for three years and got out 34 years later. Our second Ohio soldier today is Private First Class James Markwell from Cincinnati. A graduate of Princeton High School, he joined the Army without his parents' approval. We're joined today by the incredible Sandy Rouse. She joined us by phone down in Florida to talk about her son, Sandy has done some incredible work as part of the Gold Star Mothers, working with the Army Rangers, and she talked with us about her son Jimmy's journey to joining the Army. He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. His dad's family was all in Southern California. His dad raced harness horses, and we traveled from one side of the United States to the other, and Jimmy grew up around the racetrack. And he was he was just a fun kid. He always was. had this personality that was just contagious, the smile that could bring you out of your worst mood. It was so obvious that the kid was, the young man, was racing through life as if he knew he didn't have a lot of time. He did everything. And Jim never talked to me until he about going into the, into the Army until probably his junior year or so, Princeton High School. I refused to talk to him about it. I said, you are so kind. You're you're a teacher or you're a doctor, yeah. and which is what he did. He went to Finley um, College for two years in the pre-vet program and had intentions of moving on to Ohio State to the veterinarian program there. Four months later, he walks in to the house. He was coming over for dinner, and he had that big grin on his face, and he said, don't touch me, I'm property of the United States Army. And I said to him, Jimmy, what have you done? And he said, I joined the Army on the delayed entry program, Mom, and I leave in February. This story will ultimately lead to the U.S.-Panama War of 1989, but America's been a major part of Panama since its birth in November of 1903. The French government began building a canal in Panama in the 1880s, led by engineer Ferdinand de Lesseps. De Lesseps had built the Suez Canal in 1869 with great success, but this plan in Panama stalled for a multitude of reasons we'll discuss. Theodore Roosevelt was determined to buy the French project and equipment and finish what they started. His Secretary of State, John Hay, an Ohioan, one of our favorite figures from Ohio history, put together a treaty with the Colombian government. Panama didn't exist as a country in 1903. It was a province of the larger nation of Colombia. The problem is the treaty isn't ratified by the Colombian Senate. Our returning guest is Juan Santa Marina, professor of history at the University of Dayton, he joined us in our two-part Cuban Revolution episode last year about Ohio and William Morgan. And Juan joins us today to discuss the birth of the nation of Panama. The U.S. also began negotiating with the Colombians, which, you know, Panama was a province of Colombia at that point. 1903, the U.S. There signs a, the Hay-Haran Treaty with Colombia, a right of the United States to have 
use of the Panama Canal zone, essentially as, as it had existed for, for the French, nothing permanent, nothing exclusive. It will be later on <laughs> under the series of other kind of, of circumstances, but that all sort of starts to, to fall apart. And ultimately the, the Colombian government rejects, you know, the, the negotiations that had been underway, including that treaty. At that moment, TR, the man of action, as he liked to call himself, and bending the will of whatever it was to his will in Panama. Theodore Roosevelt's not exactly a guy who takes no for an answer. So if the Colombian government won't sell us the canal, he decides that maybe a hypothetical country in Panama would sell it. Secretary of State John Hay, go listen to our John Hay episode from 2018 called Ohio vs. the Gilded Age, uh, one of my favorite episodes we've done. Hay and Roosevelt go to work on separating Panama from Colombia. They're working closely with a guy named Philippe Anou Varia. He was the Frenchman in charge of the now-defunct canal project. Varia and the U.S. stage a bloodless revolution with the help of Panamanians on November 3, 1903. It really couldn't have worked out any better. John Hay and Philippe Anou Varia would sign a treaty within the month, and the country of Panama is born. Uh, Philippe Anou Varia, and it's a coup by... You know, this French general manager of the Panama Canal Company and then, you know, some local Colombians, some local Panamanians, they hand out money to the uh, Colombian soldiers in, in Panama, basically $50 U.S. a piece to kind of lay down their arms and, and go away. Uh, TR orders the USS Nashville to, to go along the Panamanian coast. Um, the U.S. also controlled a couple of the railroads around the area and prevents, um, you know, Colombian reinforcements. So it's all fairly well organized and, um, you know, essentially bloodless. And, and it's kind of a coup by a you know, French guy who is there as the general manager of the Panama Canal Company in cooperation with some soldiers. And and at the end of the day, quite literally the day, on November 3rd, um, Panama as a nation essentially is 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 born. The Hay Benovarija Treaty, you know, November 18th. So we're talking like two weeks after with the new treaty in place, it grants the U.S. exclusive and, and permanent possession of the Panama Canal Zone you know, for eternity, essentially. The U.S. gets to work on the canal in 1904, and it takes about 10 years. Juan tells us about why the American Canal was able to be finished. But the lives lost building this modern marvel of engineering are staggering. 25,000 workers would die during those some 30 years of its construction. 25,000. More than 20,000 of those died during the French attempts. Landslides, disease, tons of dynamiting and earth needing to be moved. The U.S. couldn't have finished it without the innovative work done by the Marion Steam Shovel Company. The company still exists in in Marion, Ohio, about an hour north of Columbus. Before Marion became known as the home of our 29th president, Warren G. Harding, Marion was known as the city that built the Panama Canal. Juan Santa Marina from the University of Dayton takes us through the building of the canal, which was now owned entirely by the United States, a sovereign canal zone within the country of Panama. So the Panama Canal, I mean, it, it was, in a sense, something that had never been done. I mean, the Suez Canal, which was the Lesseps sort of great claim, you know, before then as, as the great French canal builder. And really, the French were considered some of the finest uh, engineers in, in the 19th century. There's this kind of transition in the 20th century to U.S. engineers, but the French were really sort of the leading engineers of, of the 19th century in many respects. And what the Lesseps was trying to do was a redo of Suez, essentially a sea level canal. A sea level canal through the isthmus is is 
really difficult. It's it's too much digging. It's too much earth moving. Um, plus the the rains, the you know Chagres River, which is is quite unpredictable. There's a lot of things that are kind of you know problematic in doing a sea level canal. And ultimately, what the U.S. you know sort of reconfigures the canal to be is something akin to the Erie Canal from the 1820s, a lock system. Um, lifting the ships. One of the interesting things in terms of lives lost, and there's no clear um, number, the estimate is 25,000 roughly uh, lives lost during the course of, of both the French phase and the American phase, um, and maybe 5,000 or, or a bit more during the U.S. phase. The, the big uh, kind of engineering pieces were how to move the earth and the dynamiting, and nobody's ever moved that much dirt in the history of, of mankind, almost certainly up until that point. It's malaria and yellow fever, those are two diseases that took a massive toll. The identification of, of malaria and yellow fever, mosquito-borne disease idea is all sort of at that point being kind of, you know, figured out, but very, very slowly. And it's this massive effort, you know, medical uh, effort, which is, is quite extraordinary. And ultimately it's, you know, kind of the key to preventing, you know, those two diseases essentially in the Panama Canal zone and keeping the dirt flying. Once that's figured out, the rest of it is how much money, how many people can you employ and keep employed? And how much equipment can you deploy moving all this dirt? Another main character in this story is Manuel Noriega. He would rise to be the military dictator on the Isthmus of Panama. And our final guest is Dr. Orlando Perez, the dean of the liberal arts and sciences school at the University of North Texas at Dallas. Dr. Perez was a really great interview. Orlando tells us about the rise of Manuel Noriega in Panama. He's born in 1934. He would become a ruthless intelligence director of the Panamanian Defense Forces. The previous military leader of Panama, Omar Torrijos, would call Noriega, me gangster. Torrijos saw him as his strong arm or his thug. So Noriega grew up in a poor neighborhood in Panama City. Some argue uh, a poor family. I think it was a lower, at the time, it was a lower middle-class family. His parents were were not married. Uh, He didn't have a a good upbringing and, and childhood. He couldn't get into the medical school at the University of uh, Panama, uh, there were very few seats uh, made available, and most of those went to upper middle class and wealthy Panamanians. So he ended up going to a military academy in in Peru. He joined the National Guard around uh, the early 1960s, serving under then-Major Omar Torrijos uh, in Colón. And they rose in tandem when Torrijos staged his coup uh, October 11th of 1968. Noriega was a a key figure in the coup. And after the coup, by 1970, Noriega had been named chief of intelligence. And as chief of intelligence, he was the regime's enforcer. By the 1950s, 100,000 Americans lived in the Panama Canal Zone, nearly 10% of Panama's population. They were known as Zonians. John McCain was born in the Canal Zone, baseball great Rod Carew, even Sage Steele, the former ESPN personality, is born in the Canal Zone. The Zonians were a nation inside a nation, and tensions between the Americans and the Panamanians grew sharply following World War II. Juan Santa Marina joins us to talk about the rising tensions in the 1964 Panama Canal riots across Panama that would arise out of an attempt by citizens 
to raise the Panama flag in the zone. These violent protests in 1964 would result in the death of 21 people. We hear from Juan Santa Marina about the untenable situation in the Panama Canal Zone in a newsreel from those 1964 protests. Like military bases, the Panama Canal is this, you know, interesting thing, but it's it's beyond sort of the size and scale and scope of military bases in that it's, you know, um, a fairly large area from, you know, one coast to the other, cutting the country in half, so establishing a sort of economy in and of itself, really probably the most significant infrastructure of the 20th century, at least in the Western Hemisphere, control of it um, and debates about control over it, of course, you know, expand um, fairly dramatically. Uh, Yankee imperialism, you know, post-World War II in, in, in particular, of course. The Suez Canal and the Suez Canal crisis, you know, plays a, a role there um, in terms of, of the U.S. or, or anti-U.S. Um, perspectives, nationalism, post-war uh, nationalism, Panamanian nationalism. The wind of change is blowing half a gale in the Panama Canal Zone. Americans had to defend themselves as students and other rioters demanded an end of the 61-year-old Canal Zone Treaty with the United States. Panamanians want their flag to replace the Stars and Stripes, not merely fly alongside it, as in the present arrangement. They had scant respect for American property. At this stage, the best hopes were that the trouble would end as quickly as it flared up. The Panama Canal Zone is sovereign United States territory, just as much as Alaska is, as well as the states carved from the Louisiana Purchase. We bought it, we paid for it, and General Torrio should be told we're going to keep it. That was Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan in 1976, voicing an opinion of many Americans at the time. Why would we give back the Panama Canal? We built it, we managed it. Tens of thousands of Americans are in Panama working that incredibly valuable asset, something that plays such an important role in the global economy. But the pressure was there to reduce the American role throughout the Western Hemisphere. And President Carter, in his first year in office, makes an agreement with the leader of Panama, General Omar Torrios. Torrios came to power in a 1968 coup in Panama, but he was a pretty popular leader. Charismatic, good-looking, all the things his top deputy, Manuel Noriega, was not. But Torrios, like Noriega, was never actually president, but he was still the leader of the country. His position was called the Maximum Leader of the Panamanian Revolution. How's that for a title? The presidents were always a figurehead during this time in Panama. In 1977, the Torrios-Carter Treaty was signed at the White House, which would begin the process of turning over the Panama Canal to the Panamanians by the end of the century. We hear from our guest Juan Santa Marina about this important treaty, and we hear from President Carter at the signing ceremony. The treaty also leaves the right of the Americans to secure the canal zone if its operation were ever in jeopardy. You can say it begins in 64, it really kind of gains um, momentum in, in the 70s. And, and then, of course, this thing in, in 77, creating an end of, of the Panama Canal as, as we know it. And it was essentially uh, designed to be December 31st, 1999. So at the dawn of, of the new millennia, there would be a new moment in Panama, U.S.-Panamanian, and kind of maybe broadly also U.S.-Latin American relations. You know, in Article 1 of, of the treaty, it kind of outlines that there's a special relationship between the U.S. and Panama. 
And this treaty creates also a, a special relationship and that the U.S. And, and the Republic of Panama will cooperate in the efficient and uninterrupted uh, operations of the Panama Canal Zone. The U.S. will continue to you know, provide security. You know, the U.S. does sort of retain this, this you know, possibility that, that it may need to, in very kind of disguised language throughout the treaty, but the U.S. will you know, act as it needs, essentially. If any agreement between two nations is to last, it must serve the best interest of both nations. The new treaties do that, and by guaranteeing the neutrality of the Panama Canal, the treaties also serve the best interest of every nation that uses the canal. This agreement thus forms a new partnership to ensure that this vital waterway, so important to all of us, will continue to be well operated, safe, and open to shipping by all nations now and in the future. The United States will still be able to counter any threat to the canal's neutrality and openness for use. Omar Trios dies at age 52 in a plane crash in the mountains of Panama. It was the summer of 1981. The country mourns his death, but many in Panama and abroad don't believe the official word that the crash was an accident. Some people thought it was Manuel Noriega, who became the de facto leader in the months and years to follow Trios' death that was responsible for the crash. Some eyewitnesses claim the plane exploded before crashing into the mountains. Some in Panama claim that the CIA was involved in the assassination. The debate continues as we hear from Sandy Rouse, the mother of Army Ranger James Markwell, and our guest Dr. Orlando Perez about the circumstances surrounding the death of Omar Torrios. Well, we're outside and I'm sitting on the steps of one of the TV trucks that's been interviewing us. And I see Bill walking over and talk to this woman that had been sitting behind Noriega in the trial, in the courtroom. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? Is he out of his mind? And he comes over and he said, Sandy, come here, I want you to meet somebody. And I said, I have no desire to meet any of Noriega's cronies. And he said, Sandy, she isn't Noriega's crony. He said, come meet her. Well, here it was Mayan Korea, the mayor of Panama City, Panama. And she had been Torrijos's secretary. And she was there and she sat behind Noriega because she wanted Noriega to know because he hated her because she kept warning Torrios that he was going to kill him, that Noriega was going to have Torrios killed, which, of course, he did. That's, a, that's an interesting question. All objective evidence suggests that it was an accident. Uh, Torrijos um, uh, was, was known to be a risk taker. To, he was in the interior. He decided to come back to Panama City. There was bad weather and the plane crashed. There has been tremendous speculation and conspiracy theories similar to the John F. Kennedy assassination. There are some who, who say Noriega was behind it. Uh, there are some who say, you know, it was the CIA or it was the CIA in collusion with Noriega. So the, the conditions for an accident uh, were there. Now, what do most Panamanians believe? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that there is a consensus. I think some Panamanians will always think that Noriega had something to do with it. Manuel Noriega becomes the head of the Panamanian army and the leader of Panama. 
Noriega was the director of intelligence, began working with the U.S. as early as the 1960s. Noriega offered a lot of information and performed some important tasks for American policy in Central America. This is the Cold War, folks. Noriega gives help and run weapons to anti-communist forces throughout the region. It's also, in the beginning of the 1980s, the American War on Drugs. And so many drugs coming from Colombia, people like Pablo Escobar began running their drugs through Panama into the U.S. as they're an ally of the U.S. for most of the 1980s. Noriega is helping the DEA seize drug shipments, but he's also making sure millions and millions of dollars in drugs make its way safely into the U.S. Noriega becomes a drug kingpin, all the while being seen as an ally in both Reagan and Bush's war on drugs. He's a double agent working with and against the United States. When that all gets exposed, he's actually indicted in the United States in 1988 for drug trafficking. We hear from Orlando Perez about Manuel Noriega's work as a double agent and his work as a leading drug dealer in Central America, pushing Colombian cocaine, feed 1980s America's insatiable appetite for drugs. Also, we'll hear from Noriega himself after unwisely agreeing to do an interview with Mike Wallace on American television. He asked Noriega, how did you get so rich? Noriega became a CIA asset. And the relationship, it predated the Reagan-Bush administration. Certainly when he was CIA director uh, in the 1970s, had a relationship or, or knew of Noriega as a, a CIA asset. Noriega, in turn, was also... Uh, selling intelligence to the Cubans. He was selling intelligence to the Sandinistas in in Nicaragua, while at the same time helping the anti-Sandinista Contra forces. He had close relations with Colombian drug cartels at the same time that he was getting uh, awards from the DEA for helping the DEA with drug seizures uh, within Panama. Uh, so he was he was making millions in this little uh, intelligence game, and it made him think that he was untouchable. And I think in the end, it was part of his undoing, because he never thought that the U.S. would actually come after him, because he had served the the U.S. He he knew a lot, uh, he had a lot of information, uh, and he thought, no, they're 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 never going to come after me, really. Well. He was, he was wrong in the end, of course. General Noriega, have you yourself never profited from the transshipment of drugs from Colombia to Panama to the United States? Nunca. Never. Nunca. Never. Nunca. Never. Question. How much do you make? What's your salary? Quality society. Hard question. Simple question. It's difficult or sincere? Administration. Todo el trabajo 
Ellos lo, lo conocen. They know what we have done, and the best proof is in this set of letters that we have been receiving through the years. So the U.S. pays them. It pays for for information and for collaboration with uh, the DEA and the and, and the CIA. So there are payments, and there's evidence of payments since the 1970s to the the late 1980s when he was ousted. How he makes money from from the drug cartels? Um, he gets a kickback when whenever uh, a drug shipment crosses Panama and is not stopped and gets to its destination, he gets a cut. There's evidence that he was involved in in the sale of drugs or he was um, part of the network that bought and sold uh, drugs uh, in, in Panama. And, 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 and then, um, you know, he was also getting kickbacks for allowing money laundering and for allowing drug shipments to cross Panama. Things in Panama under Noriega get bad quickly. He's widely accused of stuffing the ballot box in the 1984 election after his candidate for president looks like they're going down to defeat. Arrests of political opponents, all the usual dictator stuff. But nothing makes as big a negative impression as the assassination of opposition leader Hugo Spadafora in 1985. Panamanians in the international community are shocked by the brutality and brazenness of the murder. For modern comparisons, it's a lot like the brutal murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi crown prince a few years back. Everyone knows who did it, and the gruesomeness is just appalling. A picture of Spadafora's headless body is on the front page of an opposition newspaper. His genitals are cut away. It's awful, and changes the perception of Noriega across the globe and in the halls of Congress. We realize that we're allies of a monster, and it's the beginning of the end for Manuel Noriega. The assassination of Espadafor is very important in the eventual demise of the Noriega-led government. Hugo Espadafora comes from a prominent family in, in Panama of Italian immigrants. He has been described as kind of a romantic revolutionary and actually served uh, the Torrijos regime as the vice minister of health. came very disillusioned with the corruption and the the authoritarianism. He had been very vocal in the international press and in the national press about the corruption in the military government. July, August of 1985, he was coming back to Panama when he was arrested, brutally tortured. A few months later, his, his body was found decapitated, mutilated. People knew that the regime was brutal and knew that there had been uh, previous uh, deaths of opponents of the, of the regime. But as, as shocking as, as finding this, this mutilated body of somebody who was well-known in Panamanian society, that really started the rift with the United States. Two years later, a military insider broke with Noriega and basically revealed, went on, national television and in the newspapers and accused Noriega of the murder of Espadafora and torture of being the, the mastermind of it, the fraudulent 1984 uh, elections and of all sorts of different crimes, including involvement in drug trafficking, et cetera. In Panama, it led to massive uh, protests. It led to the sanctions that in the Reagan administration and then the Bush administration put on 
uh, the regime. So it really led to the complete break between the U.S. and uh, Noriega and and eventually, um, you know, leads to the invasion in 1989. So the Espada Fora murder was very important to the eventual demise of the regime. By 1989, things hit rock bottom. There's an election in the spring for president, and it's clearly rigged. When people like me said the Capitol riots reminded them of a banana republic or a third world country, this is the 1989 Panamanian presidential elections. That's what we're referring to. Noriega's candidates kept in office, and hundreds of thousands take to the streets to demand Noriega's ouster. They're met with violence. A paramilitary group of hardcore Noriega supporters, known as the Dignity Battalions, began attacking protesters and even beating the presidential and vice presidential candidates that were protesting with the people. Dr. Orlando Perez takes us through the actually stolen Panamanian election of 1989. Yes, he stole that that election. The regime shut down the count the moment they thought that the opposition was winning. And the electoral tribunal, which was a puppet of of Noriega and and of the government, basically annulled the, the elections under the pretext that there had been external interference, namely by the United States. But it was clear that the opposition was on its way to a massive victory. That led to, again, massive protests, as you you mentioned. The the, the regime had formed the so-called dignity battalions, which were basically groups of regime civilians uh, or former former National Guard Panamanian Defense Forces dressed as civilians who had been armed by the regime. They were intended as a backup to the military and to intimidate, threaten, and repress the opposition. And they were thrown at the at the protest. And you 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 get that iconic picture of Billy Ford, who was. Uh, the second vice presidential candidate. Good evening. The violence in Panama escalated sharply this evening when government goons attacked candidates opposed to General Manuel Noriega. Were attacked and beaten up on the streets of Panama City. Guillermo Indara and one of the opposition presidential candidate was beaten and injured during the day by backers of military Later, the presidential candidate in Indara was released from the hospital. It has been confirmed that he was attacked by goons. Goons, I, I like that phrasing. I had to include it. If you look at our cover for this episode, you see a man being attacked on the streets of Panama City. That man is Vice President Candidate Guillermo Ford. He's beaten savagely in the streets by Noriega's Dignity Battalions. That picture is plastered on newspapers and magazines across the world. The beating of, of Billy Ford. You see the police officer there standing there doing nothing. The headline, Politics Panama Style, was on the cover of Time Magazine. We talked to Orlando Perez about the fallout of the 1989 election. The Dignity Battalion guy with a baton uh, or some bat or something, uh, you know, hitting him and, 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 and blood gushing uh, from Billy Ford's head uh, onto his white guayabera. And, and in that, I was attacked as well. And so was the, the first vice president, Ricardo Arias Calderon. The police did, did nothing because... Basically, the Dignity Battalions were acting on the behest of the of the regime. They were acting on the behest of Noriega. That incident really made negotiation to ease Noriega out of power between May and December of 1989 very, very difficult. 
there there were in fact negotiations there were offers made uh, to Noriega back and forth he just simply refused to agree to leave power In 1989, the newly inaugurated Bush administration, they had had enough of Manuel Noriega. He's threatening the United States and the Panama Canal Zone. Our guest, Command Sergeant Major Mike Hall, said training missions from Panama began in earnest in case Noriega couldn't be removed from power through peaceful means. But even Mike and the Rangers, they didn't know for sure that it was a mission for Panama. There's been problems down with Panama for years. Yearly, we went down to Panama to train. That's where we did our jungle training. I think I went called the Jungle Operations Training Center. And I went down there probably, you know, 12, 13 times. So, you know, you're familiar with Panama and uh, the politics and what's going on there. So we knew there was problems there. We, we knew what was going on with the canal zone and uh, the politics that were going on. In the Rangers, every mission, every training exercise that you do is based on a real world scenario. That's how you make it real. And, and that helps with intel. And, you know, sometimes you would you'd be on a training mission and, and you get a, uh, you get a, you know, a targeting book and, it's got things, and then you do the mission real world and go, oh, I've seen this before, except I didn't realize that, you know, what it really was. We did two full-scale rehearsals for the invasion, but we did not know specifically, at least at my level, and I was I was pretty senior, was part of an operation that that uh, they thought might really happen. And we really, even after the, the second full-blown rehearsal down in Florida, we didn't really know that it was about Panama. Mr. Noriega. The drug indicted, drug related indicted dictator of Panama. We want to bring him to justice. We want him to get him out. And we want to restore democracy to Panama. And so when you read these outrageous charges by a drug related indicted dictator, discount them. They are total lies. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The relationship between the United States and Panama is getting worse. American interests are being threatened by Noriega, more bellicose speeches and accusations against the Bush administration. Noriega even has the legislature declare war on the United States, even if it was just a symbolic measure. America was speeding towards war with Panama, at least in the Pentagon. We talked with Dr. Perez about the reasons America would invade, and they're numerous. But the security of the Panama Canal seemed to come up with nearly all of our guests. The elections happen in May. All hell breaks loose after the, the elections are stolen. There are massive protests. The, the opposition candidates are, are attacked. The, the protests continue uh, again through uh, June, July, and throughout the, the rest of the year. The key elements of why the Bush administration invaded from the Bush administration's point of view, uh, uh, protection of U.S. military and civilian personnel. There was uh, an attack that was made by the PDF, by the Panamanian Defense Forces, there's fear that Noriega is getting bolder and bolder. A few weeks before the invasion, Noriega had 
forced the rubber stamp National Assembly to so-called declare war on the United States. Now it was, you know, it was, it was, it was all a show and symbolic, but nonetheless, he had, you know, he had declared war on the United States. And there was fear of increasing harassment of US personnel and particular US military in, uh, in Panama. Protection of the Panama Canal, there was concern that any adherence to the treaty timetable with Noriega in power was going to jeopardize the U.S. ability to continue to protect its interests in Panama and its assets in Panama. There was also the talk, of course, of, re- of restoration of democracy, restoring that was elected in May of 1989. On December 16, 1989, four American servicemen were off base and ran a Panamanian military checkpoint. Checkpoints were set up all over Panama City following the election and the protests. Noriega had cracked down really hard. The American soldiers were fired upon by the checkpoint soldiers and Lieutenant Robert Paz was shot and killed. A U.S. diplomat and his wife witnessed the incident. They were detained and the husband was beaten and his wife was threatened sexually, according to reports. We asked Mike Hall about the reasons the United States would go to war with Panama. It was a little bit about protecting American citizens, but we didn't need to invade. We didn't need to invade Panama to protect American citizens. That would have been a much, if that was the reason, it would have been a much different operation. It would have yep. been a non-combatant evacuation operation, which was talked about also. The Panama Canal is, is obviously critically important to national security, i.e. economic security. Current events now, you know, worried about gas prices and crude oil from Russia and how that affects us. But, you know, closing down the Panama Canal, having a government there that, that you weren't going to be able to negotiate with would have been devastating for our, for our economy. I think they reached a point where they really realized that they were not going to be able to, to work with Noriega and uh, that they knew something had to be done. It wasn't the canal uh, just for the United States. I mean, that was that was their obligation to the world. Of course, there was the incident where the forces hurt some people and, and killed some folks. But I think the real issue was, you know, they decided that uh, they were not going to be able to work with Noriega, you know, today, tomorrow, or the foreseeable future. On Sunday, December 17, 1989, one day after the incidents in Panama City, Sandy Rouse got a call from her son, Jimmy Markwell, off base at Hunter Army Airfield. The orders had come down. The U.S. was on its way to war. Sandy answered the phone that Sunday and spoke to her son for the last time. Jimmy had said, because I always teased him about now you know you have to let me know where you are and what you're doing. And he said, Mom, we'll be done doing what we do and back home before you ever know what's going on. When they got the orders to go to back to the base, report back to the base for lockdown, he was at a Christmas party because he was supposed to come home for Christmas on the day he died. He was supposed to come home on Christmas leave that day. And he, that Sunday, he was at a Christmas party at the surgeon's house. And they got the call and he called and my husband answered the phone and he says, Sandy, get on the phone. Jimmy's on the phone quick. And he said, mom, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but if you don't hear from me tomorrow, you'll know I'm gone. And I said, Jimmy, promise me I'll hear from you. And he said, mom, I love you. I've got to go. And those were the last words. The 75th Ranger Battalion organized outside Savannah and boarded flights headed for Panama. We spoke with Mike Hollis. He flies into combat in Panama. And per usual, Rangers lead the way. The flight was about four hours, I think. So the drop being zone was uh, only 30 seconds long. And of course, you're only going to fly over the drop zone once. 
because they weren't going to risk the air. You know, once you fly over once, obviously everybody's awake and they, you know, they didn't want to risk the aircraft. You can normally put about 120 paratroopers on a, on a C-141, but we only had 60. So it was a comfortable flight. And I'm the, uh, the first sergeant of, of one of the companies and I'm, I'm back in the back with a company commander of, of another company, a good friend of mine, retired general Tom Maffey. And He's on the headset, you know, getting getting intel updates because there were, you know, there was obviously people on the ground observing the drop. He wakes me up, and uh, I'm the last person out of the airplane, and, and that was my job was to be the last person out and, and roll up the company to get us all where we needed to go. And he wakes me up, and he goes, "They they they found the, the quad fifty, which is a, a weapon system of of four fifty caliber machine guns." And I go, "Great." I said, "I said where'd they find it?" And he goes, "It's at the end of the airstrip." I said. Okay, I'm the last guy out. I'm not too excited about. It. Did you really have to tell me that? So I got up and and uh, we were what's called loose rigged, uh, where our parachutes and our equipment wasn't too tight, so you could be a little bit more comfortable. And I went and we woke up the entire aircraft, and you know we briefed them that you know that we had found uh, we had found you know the biggest threat to our jump, which, which was those quad fifties. And I said, you know, we got to clear this aircraft because it's right there at the end of the airstrip. The doors open. Normally, it would take 32 seconds to clear that aircraft, but we cleared that aircraft in 15 seconds. Nothing like uh, staring at 450 caliber machine guns to, to motivate people again to do things they never thought was possible. My fellow citizens, last night I ordered U.S. military forces to Panama. No president takes such action lightly. This morning, I want to tell you what I did and why I did it. As president, I have no higher obligation than to safeguard the lives of American citizens. And that is why I directed our armed forces to protect the lives of American citizens in Panama and to bring General Noriega to justice in the United States. Operation Just Cause was the largest American military operation since the Vietnam War. General Colin Powell sent 27,000 U.S. soldiers and more than 300 aircraft to Panama to provide overwhelming force. Unfortunately, this kind of movement of troops was easily noticed by the media, and the coming invasion was announced on TV as U.S. troops were being deployed to the region. We talked to Mike Hall about his mission losing its element surprise as he, James Markwell, and the rest of the Rangers were flying to their mission. We had gotten a call that they were moving up TOT, time on target for the jump, by about 30 minutes because uh, it had hit the news that uh, American forces were, were headed down there. And so the mission had been compromised. The most that they could do was, was move up the operation 30 minutes to, to try to get there just a little bit sooner to cut down the preparation time. So by, by moving the, the hit up by 30 minutes, now they didn't have time to engage that target. I mean, they had, they had a series of targets they had to hit. And of course, they all take time. And of course, they're prioritized. And by moving that up 30 minutes, they were not going to be able to shoot the quad 50. So, you know, that's, you know, it was one of the, you know, one thing's rolled, rolled into another, which, which created a, 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 a big issue. This was a mission the Rangers had trained for many times. As they jumped from their planes, their objective was to take the airport outside Panama City. As Mike Hall suggests, losing the element of surprise may have had some advantages for U.S. forces in theater as well. Yeah, there was a lot of fire. You know, some aircraft were hit. Obviously, none, none were shot down. But uh, and you know, we had darkness on our side, and that was good. And, and their their army wasn't uh, wasn't as sophisticated, you know, to to do things at night. 
yeah, surprise would have been would have been a lot better. In some ways, maybe surprise also worked in our favor because the Panamanian Defense Force, you know, was was alerted that we were coming. I mean, some were fired up to fight. Second and third battalion on their mission, they, they took a lot of heavy fire. And then some people said, oh, the Americans are coming. We're leaving. So it, it worked. It worked both ways, quite frankly. It didn't affect our mission. Charlie Company, which had a different mission uh, up the drop zone a little bit. I, I think it I think it affected their mission. It was expected to be, you know, one one Ranger company against one PDF company, which is not good odds when you're an attacker. But but most of those uh, most of that PDF company left. So it worked both ways. The airport assault by the 75th Ranger Battalion was a success. The airport was half normal civilian airport and half major military installation, including the home of the Panamanian Air Force. As Command Sergeant Mike Hall tells us, the Rangers are able to claim they grounded Noriega's entire Air Force in this operation on December 20th, 1989. I like to joke, uh, A Company 1st Ranger Battalion uh, captured the entire Panamanian Air Force, which consisted of about uh, half a dozen light aircraft and uh, a couple dozen uh, old UH-1H helicopter, but obviously a threat to the rest of the missions because that was their mobility, obviously a key target. It's, it's sort of fun to, to, to speak and tell people that, yeah, we captured the entire Panamanian Air Force. This assault was met with a resistance by the Panamanian Defense Forces. This was war, after all. The Rangers did not get out unscathed. They were wounded on the American side, and sadly, as you may have guessed, they did lose one Ranger. James Markwell, age 21, from Cincinnati, was KIA. Our battalion, uh, we, we only lost one guy, uh, a medic. Uh, James uh, Markwell. James Markwell from uh, Charlie Company. And, uh, he was killed on the drop zone. When Jim was a freshman in high school, he came home one day and, and I said, do you have homework? And he said, yeah, I've got to write my epitaph. And I said, you what? And he said, yeah, I have to write my epitaph. And I never asked him about it. And I never heard anything more about it. And, and about a week or so later, he comes home and he hands me the paper and he said, there you go. And he got an A plus on it. And it was about a soldier that goes to a foreign land and dies there and how his soul is always in that land and never comes home. And his brother read that at his funeral. Private First Class James Markwell, age 21, died on December 20th, 1989, in Panama City, Panama. As Sandy and her family mourned the loss of Jimmy, they got an unexpected phone call that would launch a relationship between this gold star mother and the leader of the free world, as well as a letter from Jimmy himself that really does seem to speak to Sandy directly in more ways than one. It's a letter that actually would speak to the entire country in a few weeks. They're sending Jim's death letter to us and i said i don't want it the personal property officer said mr rouse she's going to want this letter i'm sending it and i had made copies of it for everybody in our family because this letter was so so moving and so he talked to everybody but above all he talked to me so much in that letter i'm at work and my husband calls me and said the white house just called President Bush is going to speak to the Chamber of Commerce this afternoon, and they want to know if we can meet with him. So 
I said, you know, of course. So Bill took off work and I took off work and we got the kids out of school early and we went down to the Hyatt and they've got us sitting right in the front row in this chamber of commerce meeting and all these photographers are sitting on the floor around the stage. And I just looked at my husband because I had had so much press and so much camera in my face for the last month. And I looked at my husband and I said, you know what, if this is going to be a media event, I'm out of here. But as the president spoke that day, January 12th, 1990, at the Cincinnati Hyatt, Jimmy had passed away only three weeks before. Sandy decided not to leave before the president's aides ushered her and Jimmy's family backstage to meet the commander-in-chief. We asked Sandy Rouse about her first meeting with the president. So they come and get us, and they take us into this room, and then in walks the president with two Secret Service men. He shakes my husband's hand, and he shakes my son's hand, and he gives me a hug. And he hugs my daughter, and my daughter was wearing Jim's dog tags. We spent 45 minutes with this man, and we talked about everything from their little girl to Jim and to what Jim's life had been like and and what he had wanted to do. And spending time with him and talking to him was like me talking to a next-door neighbor that I'd known for years. He was a good man. There were bad things he had to do, okay? The international community's response to President Bush's war in Panama was not entirely supportive. It drew condemnation from both the UN in a vote and the Organization of American States. After all, as Mike Hall tells us, Americans' record of intervention in the 20th century in the Western Hemisphere wasn't all good. There's a lot of evil in the Panamanian government, and surely America's reasons on the surface were noble. But any time you invade another country, as we did in Operation Just Cause, there's going to be controversy. We try to give you all sides of the history on this show. Many critics of the U.S. invasion used this code name as fodder. Operation Just Cause sounds good, but they said more like Operation Just Cause, as in just because, just because we can. This was, critics said, an example of America trying to be the world's policeman. There was a lot of controversy, you know, after that. I mean, the, the Organization of American States, you know, wasn't happy about us doing that. The U.N. wasn't really happy. They, of course, America has a history, mostly a bad history of, of, of messing with Central and South America for years and years and years as, as we let commercial companies sort of drive our foreign uh, foreign affairs, it, you know, the infamous uh, banana wars, as it was referred to uh, throughout the years and how, how we use the Marine Corps and the 82nd Airborne Dominican Republic and stuff. But, you know, there's still some protests going on. We did the anniversary protests going on. And, and you can you can understand where they're coming from. People lost loved ones. Despite the success in the operation's opening salvo, the war in Panama was not over. It would go on for nearly six weeks before the 27,000 U.S. forces would withdraw. Mike Hall and his rangers would have many more missions to go on until they could go home, including their second mission to relieve SEAL Team 4, which in its assault on a military airfield had met stiff resistance at the Battle of Patia Airport. As the SEAL secured the airport and destroyed Noriega's private jet, making sure he couldn't escape, four Navy SEALs were killed, and nine were wounded in the overnight hours of December 20th, 1989. Mike Hall tells us about his time in theater during Operation Just Cause. It was, so we, we stuck around for about a month and a half, and we initially secured the airfield, secured our objective. Things got a little bit delayed because the 82nd Airborne Division jumped in after us, and they missed the drop zone, so they were outside. So we actually had to pause operations temporarily because we were afraid of, you know, we're on the inside of the airfield, you know, shooting out. And of course, now you got, you got us, you got the Panamanian Defense Force. And on the other side, you got the 82nd Airborne. So, you know, trying to coordinate so we didn't have friendly fire incidents. We actually had to pause 
for a bit. Then the next morning, uh, we got a call to uh, to go to Patia Airfield, which was a, a military airfield. It was it was the government's uh, airfield there to relieve SEAL Team. I think it was SEAL Team Four, which had taken uh, a lot of casualties. We jumped on helicopters. Really, no intel. Assaulted into Patia Airfield, relieved the SEALs. We we're there for several days. Did a bunch of operations where we went to the city. We commandeered a bunch of buses and and vehicles. Went into the city and and picked up a bunch of U.S. citizens that were holed up, you know, throughout the city. And that's 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 pretty much what we did uh, for a couple of weeks. And then we got pulled out of there. And and like the rest of the Ranger Regiment, we're looking for weapon caches and and to pick up the PDF and the Dignity Battalion folks that were out in the countryside and did that for several weeks. As in any war, civilians are in harm's way especially conflict like this that had so much of its fighting in and around Panama City. The Americans debuted a new generation of smart weapons and precision-guided bombs in Panama in 1989. Many of the weapons of war that we've come to know as commonplace now saw their first use in Panama. We asked Dr. Perez about the loss of life and property in Panama during Operation Just Cause. The evidence suggests that, that I have seen um, and that is, is the more objective uh, accounting is probably that there were deaths of between 250 and 500. At the high end, 500 deaths, which is still 500 families losing uh, their loved ones. And, you know, many, many lost homes. And of course, there was massive looting in the days after the invasion uh, because of the lawlessness that existed. Uh, So the effects uh, were significant for many Panamanians. By late today, they had taken control of much of the country, but their chief target, General Manuel Noriega, escaped. Manuel Noriega belongs to that special fraternity of international villains, men like Gaddafi, Idi Amin, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, whom Americans just love to hate. The White House announced a $1 million reward for his capture. And today, the Justice Department set up a hotline to take in tips on Noriega's possible whereabouts. Despite accomplishing many of its objectives, one major mission still remained in the days and weeks following the start of the war. Manuel Noriega was missing. American attempts to apprehend him had failed, that's not to say that Noriega was still in control. Quite the opposite. We didn't see one instance that Noriega made a single order of his army during the war. He immediately went into hiding in safe houses in Panama City. He finally surfaced seeking asylum at the Vatican Embassy. American forces posted outside the building while negotiations were conducted, and they played very loud rock music with giant speakers pointed at the embassy in Noriega. There's actually a playlist on Spotify of many of the songs that he played at like maximum volume. It's one of the things I remember as a kid about this war. It said that Noriega was not a fan of rock music. Songs like No More Than Mr. Nice Guy, Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi, Patience by Guns N' Roses. Even Jimi Hendrix's iconic Star Spangled Banner rendition was played, albeit somewhat ironically. Dr. Perez discusses Noriega's final days as the military dictator in Panama. No, he was not in control. Uh, Noriega basically uh, hid and eventually ended up at the Nunciatura, or the the papal embassy. It was located in the outskirts of one of the wealthiest neighborhoods, Punta Paitilla, in Panama City. And he hid there for a couple of weeks until he he gave himself up to, or was given up uh, by the papal uh, ambassador to the U.S. A few weeks later, the music was to persuade the neighbors and the papal ambassador that probably needed to get rid of Noriega. It was mostly 
to make sure that his hosts <laughs> would not look upon hosting Noriega for a long time very favorably. On January 3rd, 1990, two weeks after the start of hostilities, General Manuel Noriega surrendered to U.S. authorities and was extradited to Florida to face trial for drug trafficking. The war was now mostly over, and President Bush declared victory. One year ago, the people of Panama lived in fear under the thumb of a dictator. Today, democracy is restored. Panama is free. Our guest today, Sandy Rouse, was interviewed all over about this remarkable relationship she began with President George H.W. Bush when the 41st president died in 2018. Her and the president met on that day at the Cincinnati Hyatt, and we asked her about giving Jimmy's incredible death letter to the president that day in the Queen City. So I gave that le- a copy of that and a copy of Jim's letter to the president, and he started reading Jim's letter, and he started to cry. And I put my hand on his arm, and immediately I thought, okay, you've done it now. What do they do to you, number one, when you make the president cry? And number two, when you reach out and touch him? And I said, Mr. President, you don't have to read that now. I said, I just wanted you to know how Jim felt about the mission you were sending him on. And he said, thank you, Sandy, I appreciate that. And he folded it up, and he put it in his pocket. We take pictures, and we talk, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we walk out of the room, and they take the president one way, and they take us another way. And the president says, Sandy. And I turn around, and he walks all the way back down the hall, and he takes my hand, and he said, Sandy, there are phones in the White House. And if you're hurting, if you need anything, I want you to call. And they will be told to get Barb or I to the phone. This meeting began a series of correspondence between a president and a Gold Star mother bonded over the loss of Private First Class James Markwell on the orders of his president. We asked Sandy about her pen pal over more than 25 years, the President of the United States. He started writing me. He wrote, when they sent the pictures, he sent me this beautiful handwritten note about what what an honor it was to meet. and, And he just said wonderful things about myself and the family and Jim in this handwritten note. And then we got a Christmas card the following year, I think it was. And then he went to Panama. And while he was there, there was a a bit of a rioting thing that went on. And they had to rush him away. And I wrote him about that. And and, And he wrote me back. I never expected to get that back from him. And then we went to Noriega's trial. And I wrote him about that. One of Sandy's most treasured letters was a letter written by the president to Jimmy's newborn daughter. Sandy found out after his death that he had a daughter. Though he never met her, she was born two months after his death. The president drafted an emotional letter to Sandy's new granddaughter. It would appear in a book of President Bush's letters that came out in the late 90s. And he said, you never knew your dad, and I didn't either. But I wish I would have met him. I think I would have been a better man had I met your dad. He had a note in there, and he said, Sandy, is this what you had in mind? He said, I wrote it myself on my computer because I wrote it from my heart. When his book came out, all the best, that's all anybody wanted to talk to him about. And 2020 talked to him about the letter in there and he would tell them, you're gonna have to read that letter. I can't read it. I can't get through it without crying. 
On January 31, 1990, President Bush addressed the nation at the Capitol in the State of the Union. The war in Panama had been overwhelmingly approved of in the United States. Over 70% of Americans said the war was justified, and 76% of Americans approved of President Bush's job in his first year as president. 76%. He was incredibly popular. He'd go closer to 90% a year later following the Persian Gulf War. It's truly remarkable that he didn't win a second term in 92. There's many reasons for this. But as he spoke to America that night, no one could have envisioned him losing re-election. President Bush declared Operation Just Cause was over. Mission accomplished. But he also shared something else, a story of courage, a story of the ultimate sacrifice for flag and country. President Bush shared the story of Private First Class James Markwell. Mrs. Rouse, this is Peggy Noonan. And she said, I'm President Bush's head speechwriter. And she said, we were in the old office this morning talking about the State of the Union. And she said, he took your son's letter out of his pocket and said, please get a hold of Mrs. Rouse and find out if we can use part of this in the State of the Union. And she said, we passed it around. Everybody read it. And she said, there wasn't a dry eye in the room and the meeting was dismissed. And I told her, of course, you can use that. I said, I think he would be most proud. He would. He was the kind that would have never understood why what he said was so important. That's just who he was. And to those who worry that we've lost our way, well, I want you to listen to parts of a letter written by James Markwell, uh, Private First Class James Markwell, a 20-year-old Army medic of the 1st Battalion, 75th Rangers. It's dated uh, December 18th, the night before our armed forces went into action in Panama. It's a letter servicemen write and hope will never, never be sent. And sadly, Private Markwell's mother did receive this letter. Uh, she passed it along to me out there in Cincinnati. And here is some of what he wrote. I've never been afraid of death, but I know he is waiting at the corner. I've been trained to kill and to save, and so has everyone else. I am frightened what lays beyond the fog, and yet do not mourn for me. Revel in the life that I have died to give you. But most of all, don't forget the Army was my choice, something that I wanted to do. Remember, I joined the Army to serve my country and ensure that you are free to do what you want and live your lives freely. Uh, let me add, uh, add that Private Markwell was among the first to see battle in Panama and one of the first to fall. But he knew what he believed in. He carried the idea we call America in his heart. Manuel Noriega stood trial in the United States for drug trafficking, racketeering, and money laundering in Miami, Florida, U.S. District Court. In this contentious trial, Noriega claimed he was paid $10 million over the years by the U.S. Army and the CIA. At the trial in 91, our guest Sandy Rouse was there to see the man Panamanians called the Pineapple due to his acne-scarred face. But I was going to look at that little pimply face rat in the face. If I had to give up my son, I was going to see him get what he deserved. We went down there to the trial. We got to meet all the DEA agents that captured him. Sat, we sat with them in the trial, in the room, the courtroom. And every time they'd start this ranting about him being a prisoner of war, I'd go, ah! and the DEA agent would reach over and pat my knee and say, Mrs. Rouse, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Don't worry about it. 
we got him. We got him good. He's not going anywhere. It's okay. <laughs> Noriega was found guilty on eight of ten charges and sentenced to 40 years. He faced trial in Panama for the murder of Hugo Spatafora, and he was convicted of that. He also was convicted of France for money laundering, and after 17 years in U.S. prison, he served seven more in France before dying in 2017 in custody in Panama for his crimes there. The rightful winner of the 1989 election, Guillermo Andara, was installed as president. He was the man that was beaten nearly to death that earlier that year by Noriega's Dignity Battalions. We also did hand over the Panama Canal, as agreed in the Torrijos-Carter Treaty, on December 31st, 1999. We asked Dr. Perez to talk about the complicated legacy of the American invasion of Panama. I think ultimately Panama, Panamanians have, have it's a complicated relationship. It's a mixed emotions over the, uh, the invasion. I think for most Panamanians, they're glad that Noriega is gone. Uh, even some who at the time might've been supporters of Noriega. I think many of them ad- admitted that, that Noriega was a thug and that he was an impediment to economic growth and that he was a dictatorship. There's a violation of sovereignty. Nobody likes to be uh, invaded. By the same token, I think there's an acceptance that Ndara and his party had won the 1989 elections, that those elections had been stolen. And so that the restoration of those Uh, leaders was a positive step towards democracy. Panama began a path towards an actual democracy and improved economic growth following the invasion. Though a large wealth disparity still exists between many Panamanians, things are undoubtedly better. We talk with Mike Hall and Orlando Perez about Panama today, 30 plus years after Operation Just Cause. I had been back a couple times, but I was back uh, two years ago for the uh an anniversary, myself and my commander and several of our platoon sergeants and, and uh, squad leaders, we went back. Wow. I couldn't believe Panama of the day versus, versus the Panama of 1989. And again, I, we had been there several times before the operation and knew what the, we knew what the country looked like. But to go back and to see how modern it is, you know, many of our objectives are gone. They're not military places anymore. They're shopping malls or high-rise apartments the overall economic conditions of the country overall. I mean, it used to be a very, 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 very poor country. It's not the richest country in the world, but the standard of living is, you know, it's incredible how, you know, how much better the standard of living is. So, but to go back and look at what, see what, you know, what Panama has become. Yeah. It's, it's very heartening because you just don't know what it would be. Would it still be like Cuba? You know, what's going on down there? Economically, there's no question that Panama is better off uh, today than it was uh, back then. Prior to COVID, Panama had been, the economy had been growing at an average rate of 6 to 8% for almost 10 years. The management of the Panama Canal could not be better. Uh, and, and it's been exceptional. Uh, and, and, and by all standards, uh, the, the, the Panamanians have managed the, the, the canal in an exemplary uh, way, um, free of corruption, uh, independent from go- independent of government uh, interference, uh, and, a, and, and a model of, uh, of, of, of management for a major uh, asset, a major national uh, asset. Now, uh, corruption is, is still a big problem. Drug trafficking is still a problem. Money laundering is still a problem. 
one analyst uh, who I know, um, you know, had a saying about the invasion and the consequences of the invasion. He said, you know, the invasion removed Alibaba but left the 40 thieves. When it comes to elections, when it comes to democracy, um, you know, at the basic level, I think Panama has done very well. They've had six presidential elections. All six have been won by opposition candidates, uh, opposition to the to the to the sitting government, and they've been allowed to take power. And there have been peaceful transitions of of, of power in all six elections since 1994, which was the first election after the. Uh, the invasion. But I think for most Panamanians, they would rather be here than under Noriega's thumb. As we still deal with the 20-year war and the inglorious exit from Afghanistan, a lot of veterans and military families are struggling with the simple yet complex question, was it worth it? What does it look like in 2022? Remember that history takes time to truly know the answer to these types of important questions. Because as Mike says, net right now doesn't look so good. We asked Mike Hall that question, and he considers Panama an operation just cause in that analysis. You look back, you know, what's going on in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and people are going, you know, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And I can point to Panama and some other, you can point to Panama, uh, Germany, Japan, Korea, Grenada, and you can look back and say, what were these places like if we hadn't intervened and what would they be? Of course, you don't know the answer to that. And it's my same answer, you know, when people ask me, you know, you know deeply invested in in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I said, yeah, it was worth it because, yeah, it doesn't look great right now, but we had an effect. And I can tell you that those people and those societies and those countries, you, we, we've been there for 20 years. It, it It's going to be different. I mean, you don't know what it would have been like, but I know it's going to be a heck of a lot better because 20 years is a long time. That's a generation of people, the Panama people to, to see what life could be they probably wouldn't be living the life that they're living now, quite frankly. And that, that probably they wouldn't, you know, same thing with, you know, the work that the U.S. has done with Plan Columbia. And again, still not, not the best place, but boy, it's a heck of a lot better than it was 20 or 30 years ago. You can, you can walk streets, <laughs> you know, there, there aren't people getting kidnapped left and right, but it's not a perfect society, just like we aren't a perfect society, but uh, yes, it's worth it. We want to thank Sandy Rouse for joining us and trusting us to tell Jimmy's inspirational story. But Sandy's pretty inspirational, too. Speaking of her was an honor. She's a special American. She was well aware that President Bush, her 25-year pen pal, would go skydiving every five years on his birthday, including his 85th and his 90th, which is just awesome, a 90-year-old skydiving. In March of last year, Sandy herself went skydiving with the Special Operation Command in Florida. Like her son, who jumped into harm's way, Sandy got to experience that thrill. And just like her pen pal, George H.W. Bush. I wanted to do that. And I am scared to death of heights, but I wanted <laughs> to experience that. I wanted to experience what my boys have experienced. And it was awesome. I was scared, you know what, <laughs> until we got out of that plane. And when we got out of that plane and that sensation, because we jumped at 13,500 feet and we free fell for 4,500 feet. And then opened the chute and then just glided down. If it wasn't for Jim, none of this would have happened or in my life. This part of my life would have never happened, you know. Yeah. And there's nothing that can ever replace him. Nothing ever. But the love of his Ranger buddies through the years and the regiment and, yeah, 
Yeah. As we close our show this Memorial Day week, we honor those that gave the ultimate sacrifice so we can live in a democracy and have the chance to continue to be the greatest nation on earth. But sometimes in honoring the dead, we forget to honor our military families that also are forced to sacrifice so much that still grieve every Memorial Day. Sandy was a reluctant military mom. She lost her son and slowly after 10 years found herself contributing her time and energy to those families that had lost so much since the wars following 9-11. It's not just combat. It's suicides. It's casualties caused by the burn pits that rage at so many bases in the Middle East. There's a lot of trauma out there among our military families. And here's the Sandy Rouse on her journey as a leading Gold Star mother for the Army Rangers. I said, all right. So I talked to my family and I said, yeah, mom, you got to do this. Because that was one of the things. We stood down there at Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah. And there was nobody there to tell us it was going to be okay. I mean, they all tried. But nobody that had been there. Nobody that had paid that price. Well, that was in March of 2001. And then we had 9-11. And by October 18th, I was taking care of my first two Ranger families' uh, helicopter that was staging to go into Afghanistan, but it went down in Pakistan. And I had two Rangers from families from 3rd Battalion. And it was a 15-year God mission from then on. And when I would talk to them, I would tell them, you grieve as long as you need to grieve. Nobody's grief is the same. But at some point, let me tell you, you are going to have to make a choice. Whether you're going to continue grieving and let the enemy win a second time, or if you're going to step up, put your big girl panties on, and find a way to honor your ranger and keep his memory alive. Our book recommendation today is Our Man in Panama by John Dingus. John tells the story of of Manuel Noriega, his relationship with the U.S., and the path to the U.S.-Panama War. Really great book. Came out right after the war. uh, Correspondent down there. Thank you so much to our guest, Sandy Rouse. We can't thank you enough. And Mike Hall and all the great work he does with the Wounded Warrior Project and the Three Rangers. Also, our, our scholarly guests, Orlando Perez, Dr. Perez from North Texas at Dallas uh, did such a such a great job, and the interview was so fascinating. And our repeat guest, Juan Santa Marina from the University of Dayton, I'm sure you'll hear him on the show again. We'll be back next week with a story that we've wanted to tell for a long time about the greatest band of all time, the Beatles, their history in Ohio, the rise of Beatlemania. Uh, we've got some incredible stories from their concerts here in the Buckeye State and beyond. Uh, can't wait to bring that one to you in two weeks. Again, we release every other Tuesday. Uh, thanks to our friends at Evergreen Podcasts. Uh, we love being on their network, evergreenpodcast.com. Go check out all their new shows and some great history programs there. Like us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, Ohio v. The World. Subscribe to the show. Giving us a five-star review on your phone, even if it's just a couple sentences, really helps the show shoot up the rankings. Uh, we appreciate everybody listening so much. And we really appreciate our soldiers. Thank you so much for your sacrifice. Men like James Markwell, Cincinnati, Ohio gave the ultimate sacrifice. Let's not forget them this Memorial Day as you're at the barbecue. Have a great Memorial Day. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.